Hi everyone, my name is Zoe Reese. And my name is Madden Delaney. And we're your hosts for the Unnamed Doe Podcast. We are so excited to be sharing these cases that mean so much to us. Before we dived into our first episode, we wanted to share a little bit about us and our mission with this podcast. We are both anthropology students with a specific interest in forensic anthropology. Through this education, we have learned about the importance of bringing attention to unidentified remains cases. These cases are often overlooked in our society. These cases often go cold before they even get a chance to be heavily investigated. These cases are sadly often forgotten. But we are here to change this. According to NamUs, there are over 14,000 unidentified remains cases. However, that doesn't include all the individuals still out there who haven't been found or that aren't in a central database. It is often estimated that there are over 40,000 unidentified remains cases in the United States. According to the University of South Florida's Forensic Anthropology Lab, quote, there are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the country. Well, at least since 1980, when anyone started counting, one in five victims are unknown, end quote. This is largely due to outdated practices, law enforcement maybe not following up on these cases as much as they should, and just an overall loss of evidence. This is a real issue in our country, so to do our part, we are going to be bringing you a case of an unidentified person every week. We are here to bring about a change in the true crime space. We are here to bring well-deserved attention to the cases that often slip people's minds. We hope that you will gain a passion for these cases like we have, and will join us in raising awareness for these often overlooked cases. So without further ado, here is episode one of the Unnamed Doe podcast. Hi listeners, I'm Zoe. And I'm Madden. And you're listening to the Unnamed Doe podcast. Today, I'm going to share the story of a young girl's life who was taken far too soon near the Grand Canyon. This is the story of the girl in the canyon, or better known as Little Miss Etz. Okay, so before I start the story, I need to warn you to buckle up. When I started working on cases for this week, this Jane Doe was the first one I clicked on. I saw her forensic art and I was immediately drawn in. Can we talk about the fact that this was the first case you clicked on because I had to dig for like three hours <laughs> to find a case with enough information to research for my episode. So Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the forensic art drew me in and then I read the circumstances of her discovery and I just started going down so many rabbit holes and now we're here. So we're just going to get started. All right, so this case starts on October 31st, 1958 when the skeletal remains of an adolescent were found on a side road in Coconino County, Arizona. This was about 10 miles southeast of the Grand Canyon National Park. Analyses and tests were conducted, and an estimation was made that this individual was likely a female between the ages of 11 and 14, maybe even up to 17 years old, was about 5 feet tall, and about 105 pounds. The decedent was likely white or Hispanic. According to the testing, it was estimated that the individual likely died in 1957, or more specifically, about 18 months prior to being discovered. So that would be about May 1957. My sources really vary here about how long she had been deceased prior to discovery. Some say as little as nine months or anything between nine and 18 months. 
Namus says 18 months, so I tend to trust this a little bit more. And that's what I'm going to go on with for the rest of this episode. And I'm going to have Madden explain Namus to some of our newer true crime listeners. Okay, so in case you don't know, Namus is a database that missing, unidentified, and unclaimed persons can be placed into. This database allows law enforcement and other forensic professionals to see if their cases potentially match those from another jurisdiction. NamUs doesn't have all cases possible, but it is a great resource for trying to match missing persons to unidentified remains. So you said 11 to 14, but maybe even 17. That seems like a pretty big gap. It is. And my source material is kind of all over the place. So law enforcement agencies in charge of her case have nicknamed her Little Miss X. That seems like a weirdly specific name. Do you know why they might have named her this? I literally have no idea. I think the X is just because I don't know who she was. I think it's supposed to kind of just be like nobody or like no name. So we don't know why she was called Little Miss X. Is it possible that she was called Little Miss X because of something left near her body? Like, was there anything left near her or around her or on her? There was things found near her, but I don't think that's why she was called Little Miss X. But let's talk about what was found in association with her. Some clothing and personal items were found. Nothing was on her body except a necklace, though. Literally just a necklace? Literally just the necklace. That is really strange. She was completely unclothed. Just a necklace. But you said there were clothes nearby. So are these her clothes? Like, do we know? So most signs point to no. So the clothes next to her remains included a short-sleeved white wool sweater, a pair of brown with a green and red plaid color. They were like capri pants with the label World Gammon's Graph California Wear. She also had near her a pair of white rayon underpants and a white cotton maiden form outlet brand bra size 34C. I have some photos of her clothing from Namus. They're not great pictures, but they're what they have or what we have, but like they don't seem like it could be a small child's clothing well and to be honest with you a 34c bra is not going to fit an 11 year old absolutely not like there's no way obviously that's on the lower end of the age range and if she was 17 that's a complete possibility but if she truly was 11 there's no way those clothes could be hers right no and even if she was like 13 14 that's still still don't see that You know? But it is possible. It's possible, but like, it's just, I don't think it would be as common. Right. Um, so. so let me go ahead and describe these clothes that you sent me. Okay. And so I sent you a picture of the underpants and the, there's two pictures of the sweater. It's actually really hard to tell what I'm looking at. So unless you hadn't labeled them, I don't think I would know what I was seeing. Yeah. So the first picture you sent me is a pair of underwear. And they're kind of like bikini style or brief style underwear. They have a thicker waistband or like the part that would sit like on your hip. And they're really torn up. And that's probably, I assume, just from weathering, especially if she was outside for 18 months. They're kind of a brownish red color and they have some maybe sun stains, bleach stains, something. So I think that they're actually white. I think like all the coloring oh. is just because of so the wear. Just because the they were outside. Yeah. So we okay. don't know if these are hers. So these could have been out there way longer, way less. Those could be anyone's. But the fact that it was so close to her body is so weird. Like the fact that How it was... How close was it? I don't know exactly, but it was obviously close 
close enough that they included it in her case file. Like, right. Namus has this stuff listed as found with her. The sources say that this is probably not hers. It would have to be pretty close. If they're pretty sure it's not hers, but they're pretty sure it's associated with her, it'd have to be pretty darn close to yeah. where she was found. I kind of imagine, like, bushes with no leaves on it, like, that you see in the uh-huh. desert. Like, I imagine, like, two of those, and she was found, like, near one of them. And, like, the clothes were found, like, at another one, and they're only, like, a couple feet apart from each other. Like, that's what I envision. Mm-hmm. But, like, I have were no... bushes mentioned in your sources, or is that just, like, a... That's just what I picture. Okay. <laughs> not at all. That is just what I've, like, okay. rationalized. Okay, listen, there are what no bushes. There are no bushes there. Not this that I know just, <laughs> This is just the mental was... image we have at this point. Yeah. Please that's... note that. Yeah. That is the only thing that, like, that's the only way I can rationalize it in my head of how this makes sense, that it's all right. together. Right. So, almost as if there was some sort of natural perimeter containing her yeah. and the clothes in the same yes. spot. Yeah. That's just all we speculation. Don't we don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're just using the sources we have. Yeah. You'll notice the longer we do this podcast, there are just not a lot of sources when it comes to unidentified people. So you piece stuff together and do the best you can. So if we ever get anything wrong, we apologize, but just know we are doing the best we can with the information we have. One thing that I've learned with looking into these cases is sometimes you have to, you kind of just have to make assumptions. You kind of like- You have to speculate you, a little bit. You have to speculate a little bit. You really have to deep dive. The clothing, I went on such a deep dive with this clothing. I was like Googling that brand i was i was literally that's like detective work though and that's what you have to do with these cases you might have a paragraph in one newspaper that you have to find your own leads find your own potential suspects find your own potential missing persons that could match you have to do all the legwork because it just doesn't exist in these cases already yes and that is what we're here to do we're here to bring attention and hopefully change how these cases are reported about like this is exactly because they just don't get the same coverage we will always try to tell you whenever we're speculating we'll never just lead you absolutely on and present something as fact if it is a speculation absolutely absolutely so without delaying anymore let me get to these other two pictures it's a white okay. wool sweater like cardigan sweater okay so it's a white sweater that has very much turned brown from being outside it looks like it has some sort of knit like maybe a knit waistband i can't tell if the whole thing is made out of a knit material beyond that it's kind of torn up just like the other one just like the underwear but beyond that i really can't tell anything about this sweater and i definitely think that the clothes are all related to each other like even if they're not little miss x's yes i think the clothes are all from one person they all have the same weathering they look the mm-hmm. same amount of distress i don't see how those could have been placed at different times but i mean mm-hmm. it is possible yeah but it seems I... like they're at least from the same person even if that's not little miss x yeah so i also looked into the pants she was wearing like i said i literally rabbit holed on these pants for a really long time i thought that tag was very specific um it's not let me remind us what the tag said again a pair of brown with green and red plaid capri pants with the label quote world gamins graph california wear end quote you would think that would be slightly specific but i could see why it wouldn't be okay well it's not because i googled it i like googled that label and it pulled up ebay listings for this so i actually screenshotted an ebay listing of what i think like the style of pants look like not the same pattern these are like a white pair but if you could just like describe them to our listeners because it's what i'm imagining these pants looked like because there's no pictures of the pants on anywhere all right so i'm looking at the picture of the pants you sent me so obviously this isn't the exact color of the pants that you described but i'm looking at a white pair of pants they have an elastic waistband they look kind of like dress pants maybe not but they look like something someone older would wear like it reminds me of what older people wear to church i totally agree with that this also kind of like reminds me of what you find at like thrift stores vintage 
vintagey looking pants. Right. It's pretty wide at the hips, but it tapers. They are capri pants. Yeah. Yeah. They just look like something an older person would wear to me. I agree. Okay. So we've pretty much covered all of the clothes found near her, but you did mention a necklace. What's the deal? I have a picture of that necklace, actually, and there is some hair on the necklace, so please just be warned about that when you're looking at it. Mana, can you tell me what you think and describe it to our listeners? It's a really small gold chain necklace. It looks really dainty, really light, but other than that, there's not much to say about it. Yeah, it's not really a great picture. If we could pause for like one second. They left a solid gold necklace, but took all her clothes. I'm guessing robbery was not the motive here. That's a really good point. That is not all that was found, though. There were several personal items that were found near her body as well. Okay. Like, beyond the necklace, beyond the clothes. Yes. Near her body was a small jar of Pond's cold cream, a white nylon comb, a small white powder puff with traces of suntan-colored powder, and a small blue nail file with a P indentation written in script and a hand-painted R. All right. I have a lot to say. Okay. Number one, what is Pond's cold cream? I have never heard of that. Yeah, Maybe I have it's because I'm young. I don't know. So it's something that's been around for a long time. Like, well, you it's still said this thing. case is from 1958. Yeah. Obviously, it's been around for a while if it's associated with this case. I think it's just a moisturizer is what I understand it to be. But nothing Uh, distinctive, nothing like for a medical condition or anything like that. Because I wondered that too. It's really common. You can find the bottles from the 1950s on eBay. Yeah, I had never heard of it. I spiraled on it for a long time and there was nothing. I have a picture of the comb, the Pond's cold cream, and the puff. You want to just kind of like describe it a little bit? Let's start with the comb. It doesn't have a handle. It's pretty fine tooth. It's not like a wide tooth comb. The powder puff is dark brown from, I assume, being out in the dirt. It looks like it was originally a yellowish color, maybe tan white. I think it was white originally is what it said. The cold cream is in a pretty small container. It's, It's not very big. It's a white container. It looks like it's made from a thick material. In the picture you sent me, we described the cold cream, the comb, and the powder puff. But this nail file is nowhere to be seen. Why isn't it in the picture? I have no idea. Police might just be keeping that close to their chest and not wanting it to be public information. It could be lost. There's a lot of possibilities of where that nail file could be. And it's really frustrating that we don't have a picture of it. So the personal items really make me think a lot. The most intriguing is that letters P and R. And the fact that it's like two different letters is weird to me. I wanted to say that too, because you said one was literally engraved, script. Yeah, it's like an indentation. Scratched on? It was hand-painted. Hand-painted. Okay, maybe the P is her initial and it was inscribed on this nail file as a gift or as a personalization. R was a friend or any sort of significant person in her life that she wanted to write on her nail file. But it could also be like whoever did something to her, they could have wrote on that. That P and the R really, really get me. And it could be totally related to Little Miss X and it could be totally unrelated. We don't know for sure that these items are Little Miss X's. They could be the owner of the clothes. They could be Little Miss X's. They could literally be something else's. I don't know. Nobody knows. I didn't even stop to consider that. I knew the clothes weren't hers, but I just assumed that these personal items were. But we don't know. We have a necklace on her body and a lot of items around the scene. Has any sort of touch DNA been tested on the clothing or the personal items or even regular DNA? I'm not 100% sure, but it seems like no. Or if they have done testing, it's been kept pretty quiet and not made public. Either way, I think it's something that law enforcement should 
definitely consider getting on top of and doing. I think it's worth a try to see if the samples would be viable. The results could literally give information about Little Miss X's identity, what happened to her, who's responsible, or who these items belong to. And then a case, like a missing persons case, could be ruled out. DNA testing does seem like it would solve so many issues in this case. Test Little Miss X and maybe do some sort of genealogical backtracking to get to her identity or her family. Or you could test her necklace, see if there's DNA on it from an unknown person. You can test the clothes, see if they actually might have belonged to her or someone else. You could test all the personal items. Did they belong to someone else? The key to this case just seems like testing. I feel like this is a good time to point out the problems with age estimations because they can really be frustrating and problematic in these cases. Madden, we know personally that age can be really difficult. We have so done research detailing why estimations and age can be so far off. And these personal items really make me wonder about the age estimations because these items feel like they're from somebody who's older. I don't know of an 11 year old girl who's going to carry around a white puff with suntan colored powder on it. Right, but on the other end of that 17. That's also true, but I kind of wonder if the age estimation should be a little bit older, maybe 15 to 21 or something like that. I guess what I'm confused about with the age estimations is age estimations when you're an adult get really tricky because the most reliable way to do age estimations is with teeth because teeth grow at a really consistent rate throughout your childhood. Once your wisdom teeth come in, once your teeth are grown and you're an adult, you just look like an adult. You can't use those teeth anymore to tell. You can try, but it's not a certain fact. And so the only thing that you can then rely on is maybe the bones have arthritic changes. Maybe they don't. Maybe even if they do, those aren't actually arthritis. Or maybe that person was young and had arthritis. But it is easier to do age estimations on sub-adults because of their teeth. That's, that's true. what's throwing me off about this case. Is How could they have 11 to 17 then? 11 to 17. Six years as a developing juvenile is a really long time and you're going to see extreme differences in the body. That's true. So a lot of sources say like 11 to 14 but then it also says to 17 we're gonna discuss so i'm looking at a tooth estimation chart for juveniles and when you're 11 you are not going to have teeth that look like a 17 year old this is a really good point and like I think okay. we're gonna keep bringing this up throughout the rest of this episode from the chart I'm looking at, which is on Science Direct, if you want to go check it out, the 11-year-old estimation, their back molars aren't in and some of their teeth aren't fully poked through yet. So what's the difference between 11 and 14? Is it a vast difference between 11 and well, 14 too? the closest it has on the chart is 15. So 15, those teeth are fully poked through and your back molars should be fully developed by that point. And your wisdom teeth are going to start developing their roots at this point, which at 11, you kind of just have the crown. Okay, interesting. I think we're going to come back to this a lot as we keep going. Right, because I just don't understand because teeth in a juvenile should be a really, really steadfast indicator. And you might this... have a variation of a couple years because it is a tricky science, but a range of six years as a juvenile. And there were teeth available, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you said. I haven't said yet, but dentals are available. What are we missing? These are really outdated dentals. I think this is a good point to talk about sex estimations as well and how they can be very, very misleading in younger cases. In sub-adult remains, this can be very difficult to determine because the individual is not fully developed. For example, sub-adults have not all gone through puberty and they go through puberty at different times. 
There is a particular case that I kind of want to mention called the Graham and Trimble case because it really shows the shortcomings of sex estimations. And Madden, I know you're familiar with the case. Would you mind giving a brief little overview? Yeah. And just really quick to add on to what you were saying about sex estimations being difficult in prepubescent adults, the most reliable indicator of sex estimation is the pelvic region. And that is yep. not developed until you hit puberty. So in prepubescent children, biological males and biological females are almost indistinguishable and it can be yep. a really tricky science and you can make a guess but it's rare for a forensic anthropologist to ever be certain of a sex no matter what age they are let alone with a prepubescent child which is really weird that they put her as a female the only thing that makes me think maybe why they said that she's a female is because of the hair and the mm -hmm. clothing and the things she was found the in association with yeah but, but we don't know for sure we don't know and that's just a really bold assumption to make and i don't love it and we're not here to sit here and just, you know, no. discredit all of the sources out no. there. But it is important to realize that they can be wrong and they have been wrong. Just like in the case that Zoe mentioned, the Graham and Trimble case, which I'm about to tell you about, they were wrong. And it really yeah. ended the investigation. It really did. In July 1979, two sets of teenage remains were found in California. Now, teenagers, again, prepubescent teenagers. The forensic team determined that one set of the remains was a female and one set of the remains was a male. In 2012, a renewed interest was put back on the case. And the sister of one of these unidentified children wondered if the doe was her sister based on the reconstruction done by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Now, she was wondering if the one identified as a male could have actually been her sister and whether it could have actually been misidentified. DNA testing was conducted and it was confirmed that the two does were Carrie Graham and Francine Trimble who disappeared in 1978 and were both biological females. And what's really important to note and to understand and why I brought up this case is because the girls were 15 and 14 when they disappeared. Right, so again, that is in the age range where it's really hard to determine sex. And that's also the same age range that Little Miss X is in. Exactly. So if you're going to make make a claim that your doe is a certain sex, you could possibly be ruling out half the population of missing people that could be a match. Yeah. Taking all of this into consideration, the fact that everyone calls her Little Miss X, that she was found with the more feminine products and her hair, I do tend to think that she's probably female. I think it's a really bold claim unless she's on that older age range to just say females. And I think it would be worthwhile to look into missing male cases in that age range unless she is on the older end and she is like she has those features for a biological female. But like you said, for the rest of this case, we're going to have to go with what we've been told and assume yes. that she is a female. Maybe they know something we don't. Exactly. And so we're going to trust them on this. But it is always wise when you're researching these cases to consider other possibilities. If there's a male that a missing male that I ever see that matches the facial reconstruction, I'm going to have questions. I will like submit that as a tip. Think if Graham's sister had never thought, I know this reconstruction says it's a male, but it looks like my sister. Exactly. I just wanted to bring that up because the age and the sex estimations for this case, they conflict. You shouldn't be able to have the sex estimation with the age range or vice versa. We did mention the dental care. She had excellent dental care, actually. She had seven fillings. And like we said, the dental records are available. Like I said, they are outdated and they are from the 1950s. So we have dental records. Mm -hmm. They're from the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Do we know if they've been re-examined 
through the stuff we know now. I don't know that and I don't think so. Were her dental records available online at all? Or are those probably private? I'm sure they're private. NamUs says that they're available. So I assume that they're only available if there's potential matches. Probably only available to investigative agencies. Yeah, I don't think that's anything that we would have access to. Okay. Like we've mentioned, Little Miss X was also found with hair. There are several pictures on NamUs of her hair and her hair is described as being dyed a light brown, yet her natural color was more like a reddish brown, so maybe like an auburn color. It was wavy at the time of her discovery, but that's not how they think her natural hair texture was. What do you mean when you say it's wavy, but they don't think that's her natural hair texture? Are you talking like something that could be caused because of humidity? And are you talking maybe it was styled before she... I think it was probably styled. I'm thinking it might have been like a perm or something like that. I think it was probably some type of chemical alteration. I don't think it was anything with the element. Here's my thing. Whether it was a perm, whether it was curled, whether it was just the humidity, she was out there up to 18 months in the elements. I don't know how often you have to get perms redone, but I know it's faster than every 18 months. It's it's kind of That's a really good point. Maybe it was something with the weather. I don't know. There's a chance that she was there like less time. I'm just going with the NamUs estimation. There are estimations that that are less time. So Mm -hmm. it depends on what camp you want to be in. It depends on what sources you put more trust in. Okay, so we have all this information. Yes. We know she was skeletonized, but were they able to figure out a cause of death? The general consensus is that her death is a homicide. As far as what type of homicide, I don't know. My sources don't say anything. I assume this is due to the state of her remains, that she was a skeleton. Maybe they do know. Like, they very often keep, like, the manner of death to themselves. So that if there's ever a confession or anything like that, that they're able to corroborate a suspect's confession or a witness tip, whatever. So how did they reach the conclusion of homicide when she was in an area that's known to be pretty extreme in terms of temperature, in terms of environment, where it's pretty easy and common to die of exposure to the elements? So how did they reach homicide? The only thing that I can think of is they have to know something that they're not sharing with us. Right, because there was no murder weapon at the scene that we know of. There was no marks on her skeleton that we know of. That we know of. And that's really it. I don't understand how they got there. I guess we have to trust them at this point. I have some forensic artwork for Little Miss X and I'm going to show you them and of course they're going to be on our Instagram our website they're going to be everywhere that we have we'll have our Instagram and our website linked in our show notes the first one I'd like for you to describe is from the 1970s let's take a look at this picture so it is a black and white sketch kind of looks like it was made with markers instead of pencil it really does it's really really interesting she has short hair it looks dark I mean you said it was like a lightish brown color but it was this is how I would draw someone with black hair yeah definitely i digress it stops just below her jaw maybe like brushing her shoulders yeah it's kind of flipped up at the ends she's got dark eyebrows kind of big wide set eyes what looks to be kind of a flat-ish small nose and she has an oval face like i would say really oval yeah like she has almost no jawline this also looks like a 40 year old woman not it actually does it looks like a 40 year old woman yeah from the 70s It does not look like a teenager from the 50s. No. So this next rendering is from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is a nonprofit organization that works specifically on children's cases. They're a great organization and everybody should go check them out. So this is a digital rendering. It's much more realistic than the first one we saw from the 70s. It has the same oval face, the same wide eyes. But other than that, it doesn't really look that similar to the one we just saw. Her nose isn't the same. Her hair is way lighter. Her hair is also way longer. And I think most distinctively, she looks a lot younger. She actually 
actually looks like the age range she should be. Yeah, no, I agree with everything that you said because the first one looks like a 40-year-old woman. This one looks like she could be a young adolescent. I think this one looks more like the description. I don't know how it compared to the first one, how much it matches up to the skull features, but I think it's a more realistic rendering and you could definitely see somebody in this picture. We're going to move on to some potential matches now because there are lots and lots and lots of matches that have been thrown around on websites ranging from Namus to Webloose to Facebook to literally anything and everything in between. We don't have enough time to cover them all today, so I'm going to cover just the most prominently seen ones. And maybe another time, maybe in a future Patreon episode, we can go over some of the other potential matches for Little Myth X. Let us know if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, for sure. We definitely want to hear from you guys. Feel free to reach out to us on our Instagram or our Patreon, which should be up sometime next month, and also on our website. Okay, so the first case I'm going to talk about is Donna Pinky Marie Redmond from San Pedro, California. Her case is brought up almost every single time that I've looked up anything about Little Miss X. Donna's case starts on March 1st, 1958. She was with her boyfriend, Michael James Griffin, in Las Vegas, Nevada. The couple was never seen again after that. Donna was 14 at the time. She would now be 80. At the time of her disappearance, she had strawberry blonde hair. She was 5'2 and weighed about 105 pounds. I have a picture of Donna, and if you could describe her and compare it to the forensic art. All right, so... So I'm looking at a picture of a young white woman. She has really light blonde hair. I could see where you would say strawberry blonde. It really does seem more blonde to me. I agree. She has the wide eyes that we've seen in both the artistic renderings. She also has that oval face shape, even though her jaw's a little bit more structured. Her nose doesn't quite resemble the pictures, but it's rare for a picture to be an exact match. I could see it, but I don't think that she looks that similar to the drawings. Yeah, I agree. I can mostly see the resemblance to the 1970s rendering in her eyes, but other than that, I don't really see it. And I also think Donna looks a lot older than 14. I think that's probably part of the reason that I think she looks more like the 1970s. Like, I feel like Donna looks a little bit older. I feel like she looks like 17, 18, but maybe that's just me. I could see that. I don't know. I She looks like a 14-year-old. I feel like I also just can't picture what a 14-year-old looks like. Like, I don't have a good, clear definition <laughs> in my head of what a 14-year-old looks like. That's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> that's an awkward age to just know what a person looks like yeah so beyond some pretty hit or miss similarities why do people think she's connected to little miss x she's connected to little miss x for a couple reasons but one of the biggest is because of where her boyfriend's car was found his car was found in williams arizona and i've given you a map to show you how close it is to where approximately little miss x was found according to the map you gave me williams is an hour due south of where little miss x was found There is going to be some give or take about exactly where Little Miss X was found. It's approximately an hour away from where the car was found. Do you remember the letters that were on the nail file? Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe it was an engraved P Mm -hmm. and then a hand-painted on R. Yes, like Pinky Redmond. There's speculation that the personal items are Donna's, that they are hers, even if she's not Little Miss X, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but it's I saw that somewhere. But yeah, the P could be for Pinky and the R for Redmond. Okay, if this is true, and let's speculate that this nail file does belong to Little Miss X and Little Miss X is Pinky Redmond, then why hasn't she been officially connected to Little Miss X? On Namus, Little Miss X is not excluded as a match for Donna's Redmond. And this is the case 
case for a couple other places. I even read that Donis wasn't excluded because of DNA. DNA wasn't the reason she was excluded, it was something else. However, in an article from the Arizona Daily Sun that interviewed investigators from I believe the mid 2010, it says that Donis Redmond is excluded from the investigation and other sources say this as well. So you're telling me that you're quoting an article that was published recently that interviewed investigators in which investigators said that Donis has been excluded as a match for Little Miss X, but on the national database of NamUs that works with law enforcement and does DNA testing, she hasn't been excluded. That is what I'm telling you. Okay. I really go back and forth on if Donis could be Little Miss X. I think there's a possibility, but I also think that there's a lot of things that don't quite fit. Like the hair color, the picture looks blonde. Maybe her hair was more strawberry blonde in person, but Little Miss X had brown hair and the reddish brown hair. The red undertones would be a stretch, I feel like. But there's also the issue that Donna's went missing in March of 1958 and Little Miss X was found in October of the same year. Little Miss X had likely died in 1957, so this seems to exclude Donna's. The decomposition processes would have had to have been extreme to make investigators think that she was deceased much longer than she actually was or would have been. I think Donna's is a kind of strong lead and I see why people believe that Donna's would be Little Miss X, but you almost have to make the evidence fit for Donna's to be really ruled in as a potential match. I think you're right. I don't think we can rule her out until we know for sure that she's actually been excluded with dental records or DNA or anything like that. But I don't really think we can rule her in either. Yeah, I think you're right. So I have another impossible match for you, and this is about Connie Smith. Constance or Connie Christine Smith was 10 years old when she disappeared from Salisbury, Connecticut in July of 1952. She was attending summer camp in Connecticut. On July 16th, she had some type of physical altercation with other campers that left her with a bloody nose. She skipped breakfast that morning and walked away from the camp down Indian Mountain Road. The Charlie Project, which is another great organization working to bring attention to these cold cases, go check them out, says that she was homesick and was probably trying to hitchhike home. Several witnesses saw her picking daisies by the road and the last place she was seen was on US Route 44 attempting to hitchhike. So from what you just said, Connie was at a summer camp in Connecticut, but Little Miss X was in Arizona. How are these cases even related? You see, Connie actually lived in Wyoming. Her grandfather was actually the governor of Wyoming. She was only in Connecticut for summer camp. At the time of her disappearance, she was 10 years old with blue eyes, dark blonde hair that was shoulder length. She was 5 feet tall and about 85 pounds. I have a picture of her as well if you could describe her and compare her to Little Miss X. Alright, so this picture that you sent me is of another young white girl. She has what seems like maybe dirty blonde brownish hair. It goes to about her shoulders. She has bangs. Her eyes are a little smaller, a little closer together than the pictures that we've seen. But her mouth looks similar and the face shape is really similar too. It's that really distinctive oval shape. Even though I see some similarities between this picture and the forensic art you showed me, I'm not sure that I really see much of a connection here because even if she was hitchhiking from Connecticut to Wyoming, Wyoming's not Arizona. I agree, and I, I'm not sure how I feel about this connection. A lot of people believe she is very closely connected. In fact, one article said Little Miss X was exhumed specifically to rule her out as being Connie. Okay, so she's literally been exhumed just to rule her out as being Connie, at least according to that one article. So has she been ruled out? We're going to have the same situation we had with Donis because some sources say that she's excluded, but Namus doesn't have her excluded. So we're in a really similar situation with Donis 
Nameless and Connie, where yeah. some sources are saying they're excluded. Nameless is not saying they're excluded. I don't understand where the discrepancy is happening. It's really frustrating because this surrounds this entire case. I wish they all just said one thing because how do I know to trust one source over the other? The Arizona Daily Sun article had talked to the investigators, but Nameless doesn't have them ruled out. I just, maybe we're making a mountain out of a molehill about this. I don't know. But anyway, Connie disappeared from Connecticut and she would have had to have hitchhiked a long time or been taken all the way to Arizona for her to be Little Miss X. There is a large gap in time from when Connie disappeared and when Little Miss X was found, which could help explain how she was able to get from Connecticut to Arizona. Connie disappeared in 1952 at 10 years old and Little Miss X was found in 1958, likely between 11 and 17 years old. Connie could have lived for a little bit and then somehow went to Arizona and ended up as Little Miss X, but a lot of things would have to fall in place for that to happen. But then there's also a possible suspect for Connie's murder. Wait, back up a second. I thought we were talking about a missing person case. When was Connie's disappearance ruled a homicide? We are talking about a missing person. What I'm about to tell you about this suspect isn't confirmed yet. It's just a suspicion that the Charlie Project really dived deep into, and I think it's a pretty strong lead. William Henry Redman was a carnival worker who was charged with the murder of an eight-year-old girl in 1951. He later said that he murdered four people to a prison inmate in the 80s. Police have not been able to confirm if he was in the Connecticut area. He was a carnival worker, so he probably traveled a lot, but police haven't confirmed if he was in the same location as Connie at the same time. Unfortunately, he died in 1992, so we can't ask him. Something you didn't mention just now that you happened to tell me earlier is that the murder of that eight-year-old girl took place in New New York State, which is really close to Connecticut. And not only that, but you also told me that even though it happened in 1951, he wasn't arrested till sometime in the mid-60s, right? So he was definitely free whenever Connie went missing. Yes. So she was found in New York State, I believe. And he wasn't apprehended until I believe 1963. So he was definitely out there and he definitely could be responsible. Connie fits the profile of his other victim and he said he murdered four people. And if that's the case, Connie could be one of those four. So I do agree with you here that I think Connie could be a potential victim of Redmond's, but I'm still not quite seeing how this ties back to Little Miss X. I think if Connie was Little Miss X, she wasn't a victim of Redmond, and I think the Redmond lead is a lot stronger than her being Little Miss X. The next case I have for you, and the last one I'm going to cover in this episode, is Mary Begay. Mary Margaret Begay was last seen on August 1st, 1956. She was 19 years old and working at the Bright Angel Lodge in Grand Canyon National Park. Her friend reported seeing her get into a vehicle with two men. Mary had black hair and brown eyes when she disappeared and was 5'2 to 5'5 and weighed about 100 to 120 pounds. Mary is American Indian slash Alaskan Native and affiliated with the Navajo Nation. Do you have a picture of her that I can look at to compare? I do, and I just sent it to you. Okay. She has shoulder length, really dark hair, like you said, black hair. She has a really strong nose, a pretty strong brow bone as well, which we didn't see in any of the other pictures. She's kind of turned at like a three-quarter profile angle, so I can't really see the shape of her face very well. But yeah. it does look like she has a more angular jaw. I can see some resemblance between Mary and maybe the 1970s rendering. Yeah, she looks a lot older than the Nick Mick rendering. I just don't think either one of the renderings look exactly like Mary, but there's a lot about Mary's case that still makes me think that she could be Little Miss X. There is one really similar factor in their cases, which is that Mary went missing from inside the Grand Canyon National Park, and we know that Little Miss X was found just outside of the Grand Canyon National Park on a side road. 
Mary went missing so close to where Little Miss X was found. The Bright Angel Lodge is very close to the border of the Grand Canyon, and Little Miss X was found 10 miles southeast out of the Grand Canyon. There is something to be said about the close proximity of these cases. I definitely feel like it's worth mentioning because if you're going to include Donna's as a potential match based on, or partially based on, how close her boyfriend's car was found, which was found an hour away, I think it's even more pertinent that we include this possible match when she disappeared just 10 miles away. I totally agree. And the timing also makes a lot of sense. She disappeared in 56, in August 56, and we were thinking 1957 for when Little Miss X would have died. So there's a little bit of off there, like a little bit off with the estimation, but it's more reasonable than Donis or Connie, I feel like. And in such an extreme environment, time of death is going to be a little tricky to pin down, especially when you're talking such a large time frame. Absolutely. Another connection I kind of see between Little Miss X and Mary is their ancestry. Mary is associated with the Navajo Nation and Little Miss X is likely Hispanic. Ancestry estimations are tricky and can be very confusing and very misleading, especially if there's some type of mixed ancestry. Little Miss X could be Native American, but was mistakenly identified as Hispanic. Like you said, ancestry is yet another factor of the biological profile that is very difficult to pinpoint. It actually might be the hardest one because it's kind of based on measurements and science and statistics, but there's a lot of subjectivity to it. And it's really hard to tell what ancestry someone might be just based on their morphological features on their absolutely, skull. Absolutely, absolutely. Of the four elements of the biological profile, which I don't know if we mentioned, are age, sex, ancestry, and height. Ancestry is the trickiest to pin down, and it's usually the most unreliable. Absolutely. So with all of this said, I think that Mary's a pretty strong match for Little Miss X. I think she's one of the stronger ones that we've talked about. She disappeared in 56. There are other facts to this case that match Little Miss X like where she disappeared from. I know that Mary is older than the age estimation for Little Miss X. She was 19 when she disappeared, but other things match up. So I go back and forth because things make sense, but am I just trying to make the evidence fit? I don't know. Or, you know, if you go back to what we said earlier, age is another tricky thing to pin down and the difference of a year or two is negligible. I think that Mary's a good, strong lead. She's in the same boat as Donis and Connie, where she might have been ruled out, but she might not have been. It's not as explicit as Connie and Donis, if she's been ruled out or not. I think there should be testing done. I think things should be done again. Even though she's older than the age estimation, she was still in the height and weight range. I think you should just check. Definitively exclude her or include her. These are just the three most commonly discussed cases when talking about the possible identity of Little Miss X. And at the end of the day, it's hard to know exactly who we're looking for when matching a missing person to an unidentified doe. If you have any other theories about who Little Miss X could be, please feel free to reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to hear from you and try to bring this case one step closer to identification. And if you want to hear that episode about other potential matches for Little Miss X, let us know because that's something we can definitely do. So we've talked about three potential leads for Little Miss X, but I don't know if any of them are a perfect match. Even though we don't have a great lead for her identity, are there any suspects in her case? I wasn't able to find any strong suspects. I looked into cases around the same time. In July 1960, a hiker in Arizona found the body of a young girl. She remained unidentified, nicknamed as, quote, Little Miss Nobody, until 2018. Through DNA testing, she was found to be four-year-old Sharon Lee Gallagos. He was reported missing on July 21, 1960. There are no suspects in her investigation. 
is the reason you're bringing up Sharon just because people in the past have connected her to Little Miss X? Yeah, I was mainly just bringing her up because I was trying to look for suspects and I started by looking for cases that could be connected and hers came up. It was kind of similar circumstances. I mean, they were found in Arizona, but that's about where the similarities end. And I don't think they're related. I just stumbled upon her while trying to look for suspects and there's no suspects in either one of these cases. Okay, so they're probably not connected, but you know, obviously you were hopeful that finding a suspect in one could lead you to a suspect in another but since that didn't pan out are there any other leads not that i was able to find i looked into serial killers in arizona at that time and i don't think that there were any that really stood out none that had this same target of young girls so i'm still really left guessing about if there's any suspects after all that, I find it really hard to consider what possibly happened to this girl or who she could be. With unidentified remains cases, there's only so much that can be assumed or predicted. However, there's one theory that popped in my head while I was researching this case that I can't really get out of my head and I just kind of want to share with you guys. Is this a theory that you've seen online or is this one that you came up with while researching? This is one that I came up with while I was researching. I haven't seen this anywhere, so this could be totally... <laughs> unrealistic, but with the evidence that was presented, this is just kind of what came into my head. When the biological profile was developed for this doe, it was estimated that she was white and or Hispanic. If she is Hispanic, she could be from outside the United States and no records for her exist here, which could be why we're having such a hard time finding her identity. That would make matching her to a missing person even more confusing and difficult. I don't know how valid this theory is, but it is something that I immediately thought of when I read her biological profile. I think that's a really interesting theory, especially considering how close Arizona is to the United States-Mexico border. It's not uncommon for migrants to cross into Arizona, and unfortunately sometimes they don't make it in their attempt to migrate into the U.S., but that makes them really difficult to identify because if they are from a Central or South American country, we don't know that they're missing, and the jurisdiction gets really messy. I think it's a possibility. So something else that really strikes me as odd about this case is the fact that her hair was dyed. We are talking about a girl who was between 11 and 17, 11 and 14, wherever you want to believe, with dyed hair in the 1950s, like completely dyed hair in the 1950s. Don't get me wrong. Everybody is like free to do whatever they want and like can do whatever they want with their hair. But the idea that an 11-year-old girl would dye her hair completely in the 1950s is really wild to me. I wasn't even allowed to like use like the spray dye until I was like a teenager. And maybe that's just because I was raised in Southeast Missouri, but I also feel like my friends growing up couldn't do that and were only allowed to get like highlights and such. Even though I was raised in central Illinois, I had a similar upbringing. I didn't get highlights until I was in eighth grade, but at the same time, we have no idea her background or anything like that, so we're probably just stuck in our heads about this, and I think that her having dyed hair really isn't that unreasonable. I don't know. I just get so caught up on this because I feel like this is something that could have happened if she was involved in human trafficking. You're thinking that maybe her hair was dyed as some sort of disguise to keep her from being identified or recognized if she was involved in some sort of human trafficking. Yeah, maybe I'm just really hyper fixating on this hair being dyed, but it was the 1950s and I did like a quick Google search and I was like, how many people had their hair dyed in the 1950s? And it was not a lot. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was not a lot of people. And I feel like even then people didn't dye their entire hair, let alone letting a young preteen or teenager dye their hair. Like, that's just so weird. If this girl was being trafficked, the people trafficking her might have changed her appearance as a way to let her go undetected. 
Maybe she didn't listen to the traffickers like they wanted her to, so they discarded her, making her this Little Miss X Jane Doe. Again, this is all just a theory, but it's something that I couldn't get out of my head. No, I totally get that feeling when a theory comes to you and it just sticks in your head and you know it's probably not the most likely or you know it's complete speculation, but you just can't get it out of your head. But at the same time, I don't think that this is an invalid theory. As I said before, there is only so much that can be deduced from the little information that is available about unidentified remains cases. What I have just said is all speculation. However, it is speculation that is based on the information that we do have available about Little Miss X. Maybe it's fair to say it's less speculation and more of an educated guess or a hypothesis. I feel like that's fair to say. What has been done recently to identify Little Miss X. Like we said, Little Miss X was exhumed. She was exhumed in 1962. It seems like the point of the exhumation was to rule out a few missing persons like Connie Smith, who we talked about earlier. In the 1970s, the first artwork we showed was done and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children rendering was done in about 2017. 2017 was six years ago. Has anything been done since? Nothing really has been done since 1962 other than that forensic art. Even with all of the scientific advances we've made, DNA, isotope testing, genealogical testing, nothing? Because after Little Miss X was exhumed in 1962, she was lost. What do you mean? How? Back up. Okay. How do you lose a whole unidentified person? There's no record of where she's buried currently. There's Wait, no record. No, she's still gone? Oh yeah, no, she's still gone. Wait, no, so they lost her in 62 and she has not been found again. Yeah, no, they literally lost her in 1962 and there's no record of where she is. So they didn't just lose her for a second. They like lost her permanently? Yeah, they literally lost her permanently. So she's gone and there's no more testing we can do because, I mean, we don't know where she is. And this is starting to make me think that that nail file is not being kept as some sort of ace up their sleeve. I'm starting to think they lost it because if you can lose a whole person, my faith in you holding on to a nail file has just gone down the drain. There is no record of where she was reburied. There is no record on where she went. She could be buried somewhere back in Citizen Cemetery in Flagstaff, Arizona, where she was originally buried. She could be buried somewhere else. She could be in a lab, a university, or she could even be in a landfill. There are no records. And it breaks my heart and makes me so angry because this is such a violation of human dignity that all forensic anthropologists are taught from day one. I completely agree with you. This is a huge violation of this unidentified person. This was a little girl that was murdered and they lost her. Her whole identity has already been lost and now her physical remains have been lost as well. That was all she had left. It's so frustrating. Literally, human respect is one of the first things that we were taught when we started casework. Because even though they're remains, they're a human. They were a human. And it's a serious task to be trying to find their identity again. This is real work. And this has major repercussions if you mess it up. And this was messed up to the highest degree. And I try to be a very level-headed person. And I believe the best in people. But this breaks my heart and fills me with rage. Little Miss X deserved better. I can't even begin to tell you how upsetting this is to hear but you and i know that this happens in unidentified remains cases sometimes i don't know how it happens i don't know why it happens but for some reason it's happening and this is a huge problem in the forensic anthropology world according to the charlie project little miss x's remains may have been found in the summer of 2018 i don't know if this is confirmed but i hope that this is true and that law enforcement and all people involved are taking the appropriate actions to keep this case moving forward as well as not to lose her remains again 
I really hope that that is true and that they found her in 2018, but the fact that it hasn't been confirmed is really unsettling. Luckily, cases can be solved without DNA. It's a lot harder to solve, but it can be done. We do have pictures of her hair, and these pictures almost look like more modern photos, which makes me wonder if the hair is still in evidence. And if it is, isotope testing can be done. Madden, would you mind describing what isotopes can tell us from hair? So isotopes can do a lot of things, and there's a lot of different parts of the remains that you can test for different isotopes that will tell you different things. But since we might just have her hair, I'll just talk about what hair could do. What isotopes do is help pinpoint where an individual may have lived at different points in their lives. Basically, isotopes build up in a person, specifically in their bones and in their hair, just by that person living their life, doing normal activities like drinking, eating, traveling, different geographical regions have different levels of isotopes. Specialized testing can be done to determine what isotopes and how much of a specific isotope is in a bone or hair. According to Science Direct, stable isotopes in the hair can tell us the recent travel history of the decedent. Exactly. If this hair has not been lost and law enforcement has the ability to test these hair samples, they should. Having an idea of where Little Miss X traveled before she died could provide valuable information to include or exclude potential missing persons matches. Like we talked about earlier, if she is from a Latin or South American country, this could help tell if that's the case. It could exclude that entirely. Isotopes can tell so much and it would be so helpful in this case if they could do the one testing that they can do. Not to play devil's advocate here, though, isotopes can only tell us so much, and they act as averages, so if she traveled a lot, you're going to get a really misleading read on those isotopes. That's true. You do bring up a fair point. I don't know. I still hold some hope that they could do something, that they could help somewhat. Well, considering that by most of our sources, they still don't have her remains after they lost them, this might be the only test left to do. This might be investigators' last hope. Exactly. But I have to wonder if they do have the hair, maybe they're saving it for science to advance a little more? Maybe. That's a fair point. I hope that they do what they can. Because they can't do a whole lot. Her remains are gone. They can't even check to make sure that the the estimations from before are accurate. Science advances fast and forensic science has increased and changed a lot since 1958 and 1962. And the estimations could be different. She could be older, she could be younger, she could be a biological male. We don't know because we can't check. Double checking people's work is, from our personal experience, something that's pretty common in the forensic field. You and I know that when we first started out with casework, A lot of what we were doing was double-checking biological profiles that had been completed even just a few years earlier because it never hurts to have someone double-check your work. And especially when we're talking about 60 years, that is high time to double-check your work. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the remains, you can't do that. Yeah. So one thing that I really want to include in episodes is what can be done next. Obviously, we are investigators on this case. We're not working on it. But the true crime community has a duty to do good. And normally I would talk about how we can raise money for testing or sign petitions or call law enforcement or anything. Normally we can theorize about what testing couldn't be done. But in Little Miss X's cases, there's very little we can physically do without her remains. Isotopes are literally the last hope we have. Unless 
somebody can find her. The first step to moving forward in this case is finding her remains, obviously. It's critical. While we might not be able to do testing for DNA or the other types of forensic testing available in modern forensics, we can do a couple things. Number one, we can never forget the case of Little Miss X. That sounds simple, but it's a big deal. In an article from the Arizona Daily Sun I mentioned earlier, it says it best when they said that she was well cared for and someone is missing her and has been missing her this whole time. I agree with that sentiment completely. The 60s feel far away, but her relatives, the people that care about her and are missing her and are hoping that she is still out there somewhere, they could still be alive and looking for answers. The true crime community has a duty to talk and keep these cases that are often forgotten in the limelight. And it's important to bring attention to these cases because renewed interest in a case can do so much. And that's what we're hoping to do. So I encourage you to share this case with others. I encourage you to talk and research and care about Little Miss X, the final thing we can do for her is advocate for her. We can look for ways to find where she is. We might not have access to the tools law enforcement has, but we can and should, as true crime consumers, take the time to stand up for unidentified does like Little Miss X and fight for her name to be given back. Somebody has been missing Little Miss X and it's time she gets her name back. If you have any information about the case of Little Miss X from Arizona, we'll have sources that you can reach out to in the show notes. Please, please reach out if you have any information. If you want to see the pictures we discussed in this case, we'll have those posted on our Instagram and our website and linked in the show notes. You can find us on Instagram at theunnameddoe underscore pod. And our Patreon should be up and running next month if you want to hear one extra episode a month and a couple mini episodes. Thank you for joining us today on the Unnamed Doe podcast. We'll see you next week. This podcast was written and researched by Zoe Reese. All editing was done by Madden Delaney. And our theme music was created by Zoe Reese.